Before we dive in, I'd like to get a couple of things out of the way. First of all, there's a lot of really consequential stuff going on in the world right now. And to put it very lightly, this story feels a lot less important than the other ones that we're living. But the lessons that I took away from this investigation and what they have to say about our country has everything to do with the moment that we're in right now. You don't have to know anything about baseball or about Field of Dreams to enjoy this podcast. This project is less about the mechanics of the game itself and much more about all the cultural issues that come along with it. Due to copyright laws, I will not summarize the plot of the film, so watching or rewatching the movie could help add some context and enable you to visualize some of the scenes in the podcast, though watching the film is by no means necessary. Now, let's get into it. Welcome to Fixing the Game. I'm your host, Keir Hitchens. Through the course of the next five episodes, we're going to dive into the culture and history that make baseball and the iconic Iowa film, Field of Dreams, what they are today. We'll go all the way back to our country's beginnings, the rise of industry as it intersects with the game, and through much of the politics and protests that define baseball to this day. Each episode will focus on a particular topic, but at the same time, we'll try to weave together a new story about baseball, power, history, and America. It's only fitting to start this story as Field of Dreams starts, on a small family farm in rural Iowa. The main character of the film, Ray Kinsella is a farmer. He and his wife, Annie, bought the farm after college, and they grow corn just outside their small Iowa town. It's not just that the events happen to take place on a farm. The entire arc of the story hinges on Ray's quest to bring baseball home to Iowa, and home to the game's mythically pastoral roots. In the movie, Ray and his family find themselves in the middle of the farm crisis of the 1980s, one of the factors that screenwriter-director Phil Alden Robinson employs to add tension. Ray's brother-in-law, Mark, embodies this conflict. His company, an unnamed agribusiness giant, has bought up all the farms surrounding Ray's, and they want to complete their hold on the area. Today, in order to place both the film and the book it is based on in their respective cultural contexts, we will examine the roots of that farm crisis, and the myth of the American family farm that has so much to do with it. Before we go much further, we should probably define the term myth. For this, we turn to culture critic Richard Slotkin, who says that myth is the primary language of historical memory, a body of traditional stories that have, over time, been used to summarize the course of our collective history and to assign ideological meanings to that history. In essence, Slotkin is saying that myth is the act of building culture. It's the stories we tell to bind us together under a set of common values. Those stories that we tell about America define every aspect of American life, from the policies we implement and the causes we champion, to the issues we leave untouched and the communities we leave behind. With this definition of myth in mind, we turn to one of the most iconic American myths, the story of our country's birth. For the inhabitants of the British colonies in America, land ownership was synonymous with wealth and with power. In the words of another culture critic, Osha Gray-Davidson, Owning land was seen not only as a path to wealth, but also, more importantly, 
as the sole guarantee of freedom. Of course, this statement rings especially true for those who were denied access to land and therefore denied access to their freedom. Before Europeans landed in North America, more than 10 million people lived there, and they were members of hundreds of indigenous cultures. Over a period of centuries, white Europeans attempted to erase indigenous cultures from the continent. By 1900, historians estimate that under 300,000 indigenous people lived in North America, a reduction of 97% from when Europeans first arrived. British, Spanish, and other European countries started the ethnocide that the American government later enshrined in policies, like Andrew Jackson's Indian Removal Act, that led to the Trail of Tears. When we talk about history, it's important to remember that our history is just a collection of stories or of myths. This means that the group of people who choose which stories to tell and which ones to leave out wield an incredible amount of power. In a lecture at the University of Michigan titled Unspeakable Things Unspoken, Toni Morrison noted the process of building a canon, that's canon with one N, meaning a collection of stories that communicate our values and provide a backbone for societal and structural power. Morrison said, Canon building is empire building. Canon defense is national defense. Canon debate, whatever the terrain, nature, and range of criticism, of history, of the history of knowledge, of the definition of language, is the clash of cultures. And all of the interests are vested. Like Morrison says, when we build a set of myths that communicate our culture's values, all of the interests are vested. In other words, when we tell stories with white men as the heroes and Native Americans or black people as the villains, real white men in our society can profit from that image. That racist hierarchy is preserved not only in our stories, but in our language itself. Like most Midwestern states, Iowa is named for an indigenous people. The Iowa people, or in their language, the Bakoji people, now comprise two main tribes, the Iowa tribe of Oklahoma and the Iowa tribe of Kansas and Nebraska. The tribes are not called the Iowa tribe of Iowa because the American government forced them from their land onto reservations in Oklahoma, Kansas, and Nebraska as part of the ethnic cleansing and systemic oppression that continues to this day. Though the anglicized names of the tribes are preserved in our language, their stories never made it to our canon. Instead, we tell an incomplete and skewed version, white male settlers turning untouched, uninhabited land into productive farms that became the economic backbone of the greatest country in the world. That story, the one of the self-made farmer, is enshrined at our country's founding documents themselves. Thomas Jefferson, a main character in every myth about the founding of the United States, thought of the yeoman farmer as a foundation of America's democracy and economy. In his own words, those who labor in the earth are the chosen people of God. It is the manners and spirit of a people which preserve a republic in vigor. Of course, Jefferson's picture of the yeoman farmer was much the same image that we think of today, a white man. Jefferson himself ran a farm of sorts, but by no means was he a farmer. His plantation, Monticello, was worked by more than 100 enslaved people at a time. Though Jefferson criticized the institution of slavery, he could never bring himself to act on those beliefs, enslaving 607 men, women, and children throughout his life. Of course, yeoman farmers, as Jefferson conceived of them, did exist, but their myth was never a good stand-in for America. The myth of Jefferson and the Founding Fathers is not a good representation of America's birth either, even though that's the one that's taught in schools. A better representation of the American economy and lack of democracy was the image of any given worker at Monticello, 
the enslaved black person working stolen indigenous land for a white man to profit. As I mentioned earlier, land ownership has always represented power, wealth, and freedom in America. Our canon of stories is clear that Jefferson penned the sentence, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Obviously, there's a blatant discrepancy between Jefferson's words and his actions. In the Declaration, Jefferson expressed the anti-racist idea, that there is no inherent hierarchy of the races. At the same time, he took full advantage of the racist policy that permitted him to enslave and assault hundreds of people, never acting to dismantle that policy. The phrase, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, has become synonymous with America and its myths. Jefferson did not come up with the phrase himself. He adapted it from John Locke's two treatises on government, in which Locke states that every person should have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of his state. You can see how insidious this alteration is, given the context. By swapping a state for happiness, Jefferson avoided confronting the fact that he actively prevented the people he enslaved from pursuing their own estates. Seven of those enslaved people were the children he had with an enslaved woman, Sally Hemings. When Jefferson died, he denied all of those children and Sally access to his estate, granting only the two youngest children access to their freedom. To this day, the Monticello website refers to Jefferson as Sally Hemings' owner. There is no evidence that Jefferson ever confronted the fact that he considered the human beings running his estate to be his property. The genocide of indigenous peoples and the institution of slavery continued to define American farming through the two centuries that followed. During Reconstruction, the period directly following the Civil War, plantation owners who dominated Southern society continued to force black laborers into working for them. Formerly enslaved workers obviously wanted to work their own land, but there were precious few opportunities to obtain that land. White landowners knew that their power came from their land, and they weren't about to give up their stranglehold on the economy. Between emancipation and the early 1900s, freedmen bought up every available and affordable plot they could, no matter how marginal or hopeless, in a process that W.E.B. Du Bois called land hunger. But the age of black farming in the South did not last. In what Van Newkirk called the Great Dispossession, Jim Crow laws coupled with racist agricultural policy forced black farmers from their land, much like the indigenous people who occupied that land long before them. According to estimates from the Emergency Land Fund, roughly 6 million acres was lost by black farmers from 1950 to 1969, an area the size of New York's Central Park erased with each sunset. In the decade that followed, though, white family farms were in their heyday. It was at that time that an up-and-coming Canadian author, W.P. Kinsella, wrote Shoeless Joe while attending the Iowa Writers' Workshop. His novel, centered around a farmer's quest to bring baseball home to Iowa, would later become the film adaptation we know today, Field of Dreams. Though probably unaware of the legacy of black farmers, Kinsella would have known full well that American family farms were booming. Emboldened by the skyrocketing value of their land, farmers took out bigger and bigger loans so they could expand their farms. As Osha Davidson put it, few questioned the notion the good times would roll on forever. This boom did not appear out of thin air. It was due in large part to the agricultural policies of politicians like Earl Butts, the Secretary of Agriculture from 1971 to 1976. Butts was, as Davidson said, 
probably the most egregious example of the revolving door syndrome in the agriculture department. In 1971, Clifford Hardin resigned from his post as Nixon's first Secretary of Agriculture after a huge corruption scandal. Hardin immediately became the vice president of Ralston Purina, one of the giant agribusinesses of the day. Nixon selected Earl Butts to replace Hardin, so Butts obliged, leaving his post as director of Ralston Purina to assume the position. Under his leadership, the Department of Agriculture approved government subsidies and loans for agribusinesses, the likes of which had not been seen since FDR's New Deal, cementing huge corporations like Ralston Purina as the rulers of American agriculture for decades to come. From the outside perspective, maybe like that of a Canadian fiction writer who happened to be living in Iowa City, the small family farm was surrounded by a rosy glow of economic stability. From the inside, though, the outlook was very different. Agribusinesses like Monsanto, which is now Bayer, received patent-like protection for their genetically engineered seeds. While genetic modification itself is not necessarily dangerous, this particular version was. In her 2016 book, Stolen Harvest, Vandana Shiva said that patenting seeds allowed agribusinesses like Monsanto to create sterile seeds by selectively programming the plant's DNA to kill its own embryos. This meant that when harvest rolled around, instead of saving seeds from their newly harvested corn or soybeans to plant the next year, those seeds were rendered useless. As a result, the system forced farmers to buy new seeds from seed companies every single year a practice which continues to this day. Simultaneously, small farms were forced to produce more crops to pay off their loans, flooding the market with crops, which drove down the value of those same crops in the first place. The farmers' supposed saving grace was that the value of their land continued to rise. In 1980, the average farmer's land made up about three-fourths of their total assets, which proved to be a relative gold mine. That same average farmer's net worth in land grew by almost a quarter million dollars between 1970 and 1980. But that land was not valuable on its own. Farmers had to put their assets to work, as the phrase of the day went, in order to turn a profit. In order to work more land, they had to buy more and bigger equipment, driving up the prices of new and improved farm equipment like tractors by 8 to 10 times between 1960 and 1970. But they also had to pay for seeds and every other resource needed to expand one's farm. To do so, farmers borrowed against their land and against their future crops, racking up hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt to the federal government. But that was fine. The value of their land kept going up, and they would be producing more crops in no time. As the bubble grew larger, a rising star in the Republican Party built his national platform around policies that favored the wealthy in corporations, echoing those of politicians like Earl Butts. Though Reagan's policies favored the wealthy, it looked like his political support came from working-class white voters in the Midwest, even while his policies undercut their financial stability. Reagan gained that support by lifting up two ideas, the myth of the American family farm and conservative family values, which we will cover more in the next episode. Reagan's support was so strong among the working class and among the wealthy that Reaganomics became a stand-in for the entire Republican Party's economic platform. In the 1980 presidential election, Reagan steamrolled his way to the White House with the support of the white working class and wealthy donors, carrying 44 states. His campaign slogan, Let's Make America Great Again.
Now, Reagan was elected in the middle of the farm crisis and promised to refocus the American economy on the small family farm. However, it didn't quite turn out that way. In 1971, farm debt totaled $54 billion. A little over a decade later, after the first term of Reagan's presidency, that amount had swelled to $212 billion, a figure greater than the combined debt of Brazil, Mexico, and Argentina. At the same time, grain production from other parts of the world rose significantly, continuing to overwhelm the market. The U.S. government lowered the prices it paid in the form of subsidies, trying to keep some semblance of competition with foreign markets through making U.S. grains cheaper. Here's a section of Osha Gray-Davidson's book, Broken Heartland. A circular process with devastating results for farmers began. In order to make up for diminishing profits, farmers were forced to grow more crops. The increased production forced grain prices even lower, which in turn led to farmers putting more land into production, causing commodity prices to drop lower still. Between 1982 and 1985, the U.S. farmland values fell $146 billion, a massive figure equal to the combined assets of IBM, General Electric, Kodak, Procter & Gamble, Dow Chemical, McDonald's, RCA, Upjohn, Weyerhaeuser, and CBS. Average net farm income in Iowa went from $17,680 in 1981 to $7,000 in 1982, and in 1983 the figure fell to negative $1,891. Under Reagan, families across the Midwest went bankrupt, and within a matter of years, the government foreclosed on thousands of farms. Some families avoided foreclosure, but still had to sell their land to stay afloat, and they did. But who was buying? Not other family farmers, of course, but huge agribusinesses and farm management companies. Just like Earl Butts, who was one example of many, the engineers of the farm crisis were principal stakeholders in agribusiness. The American farmer bought Reagan's repackaged myth and never reaped its benefits, just like they bought their seeds and sold their farms to the same huge corporations that were gradually eating up the American heartland. In 1984, as the impact of the crisis became more and more apparent, Ronald Reagan was seeking re-election. He knew exactly what was happening to small family farmers that made up so much of his base, so he traveled to the Midwest and delivered speeches from those same family farms. With so much on the line in these difficult economic times, I know you need more than just a pat on the back. Things haven't been so good down on the farm in recent years. You've been hurting, and all of America's been hurting with you. If things are to go well for America, they must get better for the American farmer. To make America well again, to untangle the wreckage past big spending and big taxing made of our economy, we've got to make it profitable to be a farmer again. Instead of recognizing how his own policies made the farm crisis so much worse, Reagan doubled down on the myth of the small farm as the backbone of the American economy. He ran on exactly that rosy glow of economic stability that W.P. Kinsella saw from the outside, and forever enshrined it in his 1984 campaign slogan and its accompanying ad. It's morning again in America. Today, more men and women will go to work than ever before in our country's history. With interest rates at about half the record highs of 1980, nearly 2,000 families today will buy new homes more than at any time in the past four years. This afternoon, 6,500 young men and women will be married. And with inflation at less than half of what it was just four years ago, 
they can look forward with confidence to the future. It's morning again in America. And under the leadership of President Reagan, our country is prouder and stronger and better. Why would we ever want to return to where we were less than four short years ago? When Reagan won in 1984, mourning did not come to America for those farmers. Instead, Reagan again strengthened the economic policies that favored the rich and corporations, and the farmers continued to go under. As the dust was just starting to settle on Ronald Reagan's presidency, Field of Dreams was released in 1989. Kevin Costner plays Ray Kinsella, a familiar character, the farmer and family man struggling to compete with the rise of industrial agribusiness represented by his brother-in-law, Mark. However, instead of using the story to examine the roots of the crisis, screenwriter-director Phil Alden Robinson chose to create yet another monument to the myth of the working-class white male farmer as America's backbone. That story would quickly join the canon of American baseball movies and the canon of quintessential American movies in general. At first glance, it looks like Robinson completely ignored politics altogether, but when we take a closer look, the picture becomes even more insidious. Ray Kinsella, the white poster boy for the myth of the American family farm, is a fictional character who risks his farm to pursue his dream. In real life, in the 1960s, black farmers were doing almost the same thing. Though excluded from both our myths about the 60s and about farming in general, black landowners in the South were the unsung heroes of the civil rights movement. In a 1979 article, William Nelson stated that black farmers in Holmes County, Mississippi, have been more deeply involved in the struggle for civil rights than any identifiable group of black citizens in the state. Black farmers even put up their farms as bail for civil rights protesters. In our country, where black people had so long been deprived of the farmland that represented human rights, wealth, and political power, those black farmers were willing to risk what they had for a different dream, to simply be treated equally. It's not just insensitive or ignorant for Field of Dreams to sidestep that reality. It continues the erasure of black farmers from our canon of stories about America. The product of Ray's dream, his vision of America, is one where black people continue to be excluded. Next time, we'll dig deeper into the film and the myth of the 1960s, examining the ways that Phil Alden Robinson used the film's female characters and the singular black character to co-opt the very same protest movement that those black farmers took part in. I hope you enjoyed the first episode of Fixing the Game. This podcast is the culmination of my summer 2020 research project that I completed with the mentorship of my professor, advisor, and friend, Steve Andrews. It's been a long time coming. As mentioned at the top of the episode, I put this project on the back burner to focus on some organizing work. I'm glad that I can finally share my project with you. Episode two is coming soon. See you next time.